At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Through our series Divided, Seeking Unity in a Fractured World, we're coming face-to-face with the division that seems to define the culture of our nation, our communities, and even our churches. Join us as we turn to 1 Corinthians to discover the unifying power of a people who follow Christ. We are more divided than ever. How many of you heard that sentence or sentiment or idea over the last months, maybe even years? It seems like wherever I go around the culture, it seems like there's this pervasive theme that our culture is just becoming more and more tribalistic, more and more divided. It seems that whatever social issue comes up, economic issue, political issue, it just seems to tear at the very fabric of our sense of cultural unity Seems like there's just this constant battle and tension, people drawing lines, kind of struggling with all of these tensions in many ways that we feel. I heard it said this week from someone, or read this week, is someone say, the only thing that we agree on is that we disagree on everything. And in a lot of ways, that, that unfortunately seems to be the case. I mean, I can readily assume that whenever some decision gets made, a social issue gets brought up, something hits the headlines, I can go on social media and at some point I'm going to read someone who says, if you believe so-and-so, if you support so-and-so, if you do this, don't even be friends with me anymore. Just defriend me. It's like even if we disagree, it seems like there's this cultural impulse all of a sudden to be like, we're done. We can't even be in relationship." We can't even converse. And it seems like this tension, this feeling of we're more than divided than ever just seems to be everywhere we turn. And I know that we're all wrestling through how we navigate some of this. In one sense, this probably shouldn't be that surprising to us. The history of the world is the division of people. Since the Tower of Babel, people have always found means to divide. And even as Christians, our origin story that we believe about the world, which we believe is true, is that from the very beginning when Adam and Eve turned in rebellion against God and ate the fruit, the first consequence, one of the first consequences was division. That there was a breaking of relationship and a coming against one another, a drawing of lines that said, no, she's at fault, he's at fault, they're at fault. So in one sense, I don't think we should ultimately be surprised that our world often finds itself in the struggles of division. But I think what should cause us concern is that that division has become incredibly pervasive within the church of Jesus Christ. It's one thing for the world to be divided out there. It's another thing when we become divided in here. When we start to fracture and form lines and move away from one another and our unity that we have. Unity is central to Jesus' vision for his people. In fact, if you go all the way back to one of Jesus' most profound prayers that happened right before he went to the cross, he actually prayed for the unity of those that would follow him. In John 17, Jesus is praying what's often called the high priestly prayer, and one of his main themes is unity. And at one point, he prays this in John 17. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, 
So Jesus is praying at this point, not just for his little band of followers, but actually those that would come to believe the good news that he is in fact Lord and Messiah, that he died for our sins and that he rose again, that those that would believe in that, that would come to give their life in following him, he begins to pray this, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Now, why is unity so important to Jesus that he would pray this over those that would follow him? Well, he says it in the next phrase, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Paramount to the witness of God's people in the world to the good news of Jesus is their unity. That the world, when they look at the church, should see something different and unique and distinct in Jesus' people that would cause them to be united, that would say that that actually shows something about who God is like. Unity is important because it's part of our witness to the world. And when the church is divided against itself, it has massive implications for our purpose as being witnesses to Jesus. And unfortunately, you and I are living in a day where those dividing lines that we see in our culture are beginning to wreak havoc within the life of God's people. So how do we, how do we come back and pursue this vision that Jesus has for his church when we're faced with all sorts of division? Well, to answer that question, we want to spend the next five weeks looking at the first chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians. Because if there was ever a church in the first century that we could learn from when it comes to division, it's the church in Corinth. This church was a hot mess. I mean, just to give you a little bit of background to it, so you can kind of understand why we're going to lean into this over the next few weeks. Corinth was one of the larger capitals, or one of the larger cities in the Roman Empire. It sits in southern Greece, right on the coast, in a major trade route between Rome and Asia. And so because of that, it grew as this kind of major economic hotspot. If you were going to travel and carry goods, at some point you were going to go through Corinth. And so because of that, the city actually grew to become a place where lots of people came to to pursue economic opportunity and prosperity. And so it actually becomes, in the first century, a large city, a regional city. It actually used to host athletic events. It had theaters. It was eclectic. So it was a massive city, but it was also a very diverse city. Had lots of cultures, lots of people, lots of religious beliefs that all came together in this place. And so naturally, like most cities, I mean, if you were to put it in our modern context, this would be like most of our coastal cities, Right? Think of New York, a L.A., a San Francisco, a Miami, a, you name it, kind of those, those hotbeds where everybody comes looking for opportunities and cultural mix. That's, that's Corinth. And so they, they begin to naturally in those places, like most people do, kind of try to figure out how they're together, but also kind of hold on to where they're distinct. And, and all of a sudden, in the midst of this kind of eclectic city, the gospel begins to move in a dramatic way. If you actually go back and, and read about the history of the church of Corinth, and I'm just going to give you a summary, but if you want to find it later, it's in Acts 18, so you can read it. Paul, the apostle, leaves Athens and actually comes to this city. And as he comes to this city, he meets two Christians there who are actually from Rome, and they're tent makers. And so Paul and these two Christians, they set up a shop in the middle of Corinth, 
Corinth, and they begin to make tents and repair tents and, and begin to work. And as they do this, they begin to bear witness to the truth and the good news of Jesus. Paul originally goes to the synagogue, as was his normal kind of plan, and begins to share with the Jews there about the truth of Jesus. Ultimately, they kind of reject him, and so he decides to go to the Gentiles, non-Jews. And so he begins to bear witness. Well, God begins to do an amazing work. A bunch of people begin to come to Jesus. And actually, God comes to Paul at one point in Acts 18 and says, hey, you're going to face some hardship, but keep keep preaching because I have people that are all my own in this city. And so Paul actually would stay in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching, discipling, raising up Christians in that place. And God does an amazing work in Corinth in raising his church. But the time comes for Paul to leave and he goes on. And as Paul's traveling, because he was a missionary, went around the known world, as he's traveling, he begins to hear reports that, that this church that he planted is starting to have some major issues. And people are coming to him and saying, like, Paul, you got to do something about Corinth. They're a mess there. What was started as good has actually become this whole fracturing of division. And so Paul writes 1 Corinthians essentially to address the church in Corinth. And what we see is this church is divided in all sorts of ways. They're divided over who they follow. At one point in the letter, Paul addresses the fact that some of them are like, I'm with Paul, I'm with Apollos, I'm with Jesus, I'm with, and they're, they're, they're literally dividing their church based on the teaching that they follow. Some are divided ethically. I mean, you, you have one guy in there who's acting inappropriately with another family member, and the church is okay with it, and some aren't, and Paul's writing and saying like, hey, 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 this isn't a... Like, we got to deal with this. This isn't okay. They're dividing economically. Literally, when they would come into church to celebrate communion, the rich people would gather, use up all the resources, and then just leave the leftovers for the poor. And Paul's like, whoa, that's not how the church operates. They're dividing over spiritual gifts. Some of them are like, hey, if you really follow Jesus, you would act like this. You would have this gift. And others are like, no, that's not the case. And and so all all we see, all we see, if you just look at the letter of 1 Corinthians, is these divisions all over the place. And a lot of that bleeds in from the culture that they were surrounded by. And so Paul writes this letter to them to say, hey, we need to be a church that's united under the lordship of Jesus. And he has lots of lessons to help them deal with the divisions that they were experiencing. And from that, a lot of lessons that we can learn as well about how we can pursue unity together. And so we're going to dig into this early part of this book to help us think through what does it really look like to be a people united, to pursue unity in the midst of a world that's pursuing division. So with that said, let's jump in. We're just going to look at the first three verses. I read them for you, but I kind of want you to read again and unpack a little bit of Paul. Paul is brilliant at kind of from the very get-go using his words to point us towards the direction and instruction that he wants to give us. So again, hear hear it again. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So if, if you're astute Bible readers, you notice Paul has a repetitive phrase that he brings up even in the first two verses of his letter. It's the word called. Paul, from the very get-go, wants to remind these Christians that part of the reason we need to pursue unity is because we're a called people. In fact, if I was just to summarize kind of the big idea that I want you to understand from this first thing, it's a reminder that we, 
are called together in Christ. That's what Paul wants to remind them. He reminds them of his calling. He reminds them of their calling. And what he wants to show them together from the very beginning is you and I, we're called together in Christ Jesus. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be called together? Well, that's where Paul's brilliance in the way he formulates the opening letter kind of points us to what it actually looks like to be called together in Christ. In, in one sense, what Paul begins in this letter is a pretty standard format for letters written in his day. So when you write a letter to someone or an email, you probably have a similar format that you write in, right? Like, dear so-and-so, or hey so-and-so, and then you give some sort of greeting, hope you're doing well, you know, good to hear from you, yada, yada, yada. Then you write your letter body, and at the end you give some sort of like, sincerely, Jacob, with love, grace, whatever it is, right? That's kind of how we format. If you were to write a letter in Paul's day, the way you would format that letter is usually you would begin with your name, the writer, you'd begin then with the recipient, and then you would offer some sort of greeting to them. So the first three verses, in some sense, follow that same format. Paul to the church in Corinth, grace and peace. But it's actually Paul uses, even from the beginning, that standard greeting in a way to begin to call them towards what he's going to envision in the letter and how he's going to challenge them to pursue their unity. And you see it again right from the beginning. He introduces Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Now there's two interesting things about the way God calls them in this, or that Paul reminds them of their unity in this. One, he reminds them of his calling, that he's coming to them, not down his high horse, you should listen to me, but reminding them, I'm ultimately writing to this because God has called me as an apostle. That what's rooted ultimately in my instruction for you is what God has done in my life. And then he references our brother Sosthenes. Now, if you go back into the story of Acts 18, what you see is that Sosthenes is also mentioned there as one of the leaders of the Hebrew synagogue. And so at some point, it seems Sosthenes, we can make the inference, came to trust in Jesus and is now joined with Paul in writing back to the church. So even already, Paul, in highlighting Sosthenes, is highlighting unity between Jew and Gentile in what he writes. And then he steps in to say, okay, as I'm called, now it's time to remind you of your calling. And so he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Now that's an interesting phrase. One, because it's likely that when Paul writes to the church of God in Corinth, who is he writing to? Remember, Christianity is not like it is today in the first century. There's no church buildings. Christians gather in homes, in small kind of groups, partially because they're new, partially because they're not even fully legal, partially because that's only the option they have. Much like how our life group gathers, that's much how the church is. But Paul, as he writes to the church in Corinth, is writing to this collective entity of the church. So he's even reminding them of their unity from the get-go by addressing them as the church. And then from there, he reminds them that they're the church of God in Corinth. Now there's the tension point for me. There's the tension point for Paul. Because the question that he is going to ask, that he sets up, I think even in that phrase that you're going to see through the rest of the letter is, are you a church marked by the identity of Christ? Or are you a church marked by the identity of Corinth? What shapes how you understand yourself and how you relate in your unity together? 
To be the church in Corinth is to live in a tension of both being God's people, but also being in a place that surrounds and pervades your everyday life. And Paul's going to challenge them to say, hey, to the church of God in Corinth, remember who you are. Remember who you are called in. And in that, he shows us three things about our calling together in Christ. The first thing he reminds them of right away, look at the phrase, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. So what does it mean to be called in Christ together? Well, the first thing Paul reminds them means, it means we are called to, to holiness. This phrase that Paul uses here of to those sanctified is the idea of to be made holy. Even that term that he calls them saints which has gotten co-opted in our day to reference to like super spiritual people, that's not how Paul means it. The word saints can literally be translated as holy ones. That's the literal translation. And Paul means it for all of those who are in Christ in the church. So the first thing he identifies of saying, hey, church in Corinth, the first thing you need to remember about your calling is that you're called to holiness. You're called to be Holy. Now, what does that mean, right? We use this term holy all the time around the church. To be holy, you should be holy. We say God is holy. The word holy simply means to be set apart. To be set apart. So when we say God is holy, what we mean is that God is set apart from everything else in creation. That he is distinct. That there is no one, nothing that is like him. He is utterly unique in his attributes and who he is and his nature. So for God to be holy means he's set apart from everything else. When we say, God, you're holy, 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 we're saying is you're different. You're unique, and we praise you for that. Now, when we say someone is holy, same thing, we're called to be holy as God is holy. Leviticus reminds us. Peter also uses that language. Paul's drawing on that same imagery here. It means that those who are in Jesus are also called to be set apart. They're meant to be distinct. So he's reminding the church that's existing in Corinth Yes, you're in Corinth, you're in this culture, but you're supposed to be set apart for God's purposes in that culture. You're supposed to be distinct and different. Maybe you can think of it this way. Kids, uh, how many of you, uh, you can tell me actually, do any of you have parents or grandparents that have dishes that you're not allowed to touch? Yes, maybe, some of you. When I was a kid, I remember my grandma had this cabinet in, my, uh, in her dining room. And you weren't, as a kid, allowed to even look at it, <laughs> let alone touch it. Because in that cabinet was my grandma's special china. And that only came out on very special occasions. And only adult, the adults were allowed to eat on the china. Right, if you were a kid, it was like, you go to go eat on the card table with a paper plate. But parents, they get the dining room with the china, right? Like, it, the, the china was set apart, and it was set apart for a specific purpose. It marked a special occasion that you would celebrate together. So it was only brought out for that. It was holy. You could say that. It, it was holy in the sense that it was set apart for a specific purpose. It's, that's the same idea when it comes to you and me. That you and I, when we come to trust in Jesus, we're set apart together as the church, as a community that's meant to be distinct for God's purposes in the world. This has always been God's desire 
for you kids that were here at kids camp, we, we learned the reality that God made us with a purpose to be his image bearers, that we fell from that, but Jesus redeems us back to that purpose, that we're meant to show the world what God is like. That's why we're called to holiness. When people look at us, they should see, oh, that's what God is like. That's why Jesus prayed for our unity. Because if God is one, then we should be one so we image what God is like in the way we relate to one another. And so Paul says, you're called to holiness. And you need to remember that. You're supposed to be distinct. When people look at our church community, do we look more like the culture around us or do we look more like the distinct kingdom of God? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Which do we look more like? That means it doesn't mean there aren't certain aspects of our culture that are here, but where those aspects come in conflict with the kingdom of God, we want to be people who image the kingdom of God, not just the kingdom of wherever we come from. That's what it means to be holy, to be set apart. The second thing then Paul reminds them as they're called to be holy, sanctified saints is that they're also called to unity. Not just a unity with themselves, but a unity with God's church altogether. That's why it says, we're called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. We're meant to have a certain unity, not just within us, but a unity with other churches and other people and other places that are submitted under the lordship of Christ. To say, yes, we're Jesus people, and because of that, we're together in that regard. He's what marks us, and because of that, we feel a certain affinity and relationship, not only within ourselves, but with also under all of those who would name Jesus. I remember one of the first times I experienced this was when I got the opportunity to travel to India and to minister to the church there. And you get on a plane and you fly some thousands of miles and many hours and you're tired and exhausted. And I remember we went into a church gathering that was literally in like, a, a they were constructing uh, an apartment and it wasn't even finished. And that's where the church gathered. And we were like on whatever we could find. And we sit down, but I just remember in a moment, my soul feeling this like affinity for the people there. Like I, I couldn't even talk to them. We didn't even share the same language, but it was like, these are my brothers and sisters. Like, I felt closer in that moment with people I couldn't even talk to than I do with extended family members that I know that don't know Jesus. That's what happens. When you come into the kingdom of God, it creates within you a certain unity because you're all in Christ. So you're now one. And that then supersedes the other divisions that too easily can get drawn in. Think of it like this, maybe. So, I'm from Ohio. You know that. Right? Boo me, cheer me, whatever you want. Okay? Because I'm from Ohio, we're obligated, it's like written in our state laws, to support the Ohio State Buckeyes. I know, I'm sorry, but it's just part of it, right? So because of that, there's this tradition that's probably annoying to most of you Michiganders that I find even here. That whenever I see someone from Ohio or I see a bumper sticker, or I see a shirt, what do I do? I say, O-H, and they reply back, okay, there's a few of you in this room with me, right? 
I mean, I know you guys do go white, go green. I'm not sure what Michigan does, but you get the point, right? Go blue. I, I can't even believe I let those words come out of my mouth. I'm just kidding, right? But, but here's the point, here's the point. The point is we feel a certain affinity because we're from the same place. So half the time when I interact with someone or I have a conversation, like, I don't know where their political stance is. I, I'm not sure exactly where they, what they believe. But because we support the same football team, we have a certain unity that you feel. Now, that's over something that could not be more trivial. Football's fun to enjoy. But it's like temporary and doesn't matter. And yet I feel an emotion with someone because we're from the same place and support the same team. How much more should those who are a part of the church of Jesus Christ, who he died for, set apart and sanctified, feel the same power and unity because they belong to the same kingdom under the same Lord together? And how much more should that affinity rise above the cultural divisions that we're drawn to? See, that's Paul's point. The Corinthian church had gotten to a place of spiritual pride where they trusted in themselves more than they trusted in the kingdom. And so because of that, they started to divide, not only with other churches, but with one another. And Paul comes along and says, hey, remember, you're called in Christ to be saints, and part of that means you're with, you're together with all of God's people, and that's your priority. You see, when we live in a place of spiritual pride, when we forget our Lord and our kingdom, we get more competitive with one another than we do unified. So I was just faced with that this week. I'll be honest. I had lunch with a pastor from another larger church in our area that's getting ready to plant a campus of their church in Farmington Hills. And so we had lunch this week to talk about it. And, um, and it was great. And we were talking about it. And, and I'll be honest. Here's my transparency. At first, there was a little bit of pride that was like, why are you coming to Farmington Hills? We got this. We're here. We're Woodside Bible Church. Like, aren't there enough other cities? That's spiritual pride. And as that comes up, right, immediately it's like separate, compete, no. Now, by the power of God's spirit, that's my flesh, by the power of God's spirit, I'm able to step back and recognize, hey, you know what? There's 80,000 people in Farmington Hills. There is no way my campus is going to be able to saturate this community with the gospel of Jesus in a way to reach those 80,000. I need as many gospel preaching churches as we can get. We need as many people living out the dynamic relationship of Jesus and showing the world what is mission. So if you guys are here, great. How can we work together? How can we serve you? How can we partner so that we can be unified and present the good news of Jesus to the campus around us? You see, that's what we're called to. We're called to a kingdom that's bigger than just our individual existence and our individual community. And what Paul wants to remind you is part of being called together in Christ is that you're called to that larger kingdom work. And you're called to be united with those who come under the lordship of Jesus. Now, on the other hand, I think this also creates for us, and I won't go deep into this because we can unpack this in another time. I think this also helps us see the places, the few places where we might have to divide. 
which is when there are choices that compromise the gospel of Jesus or teachings that compromise the truth of his lordship, his death, his resurrection, his word, then those are times where you step back and say, whoa, 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 I don't know if we can be united there. If you want to say Jesus didn't truly raise from the dead, if you want to say the cross like, is a nice idea and example, but it doesn't really pay for our sins, I, I don't think we're on the same team there. And it doesn't mean we don't have love. It doesn't mean we have to be jerks, right? But, but it means we, we do, and you see Paul do this, you do say, that's not, we're, we're not both under Jesus at that point. But again, those are core and central. And the church has defined those for what orthodoxy is. So where we find orthodoxy, our heart then is for unity and togetherness, and to let the secondary divisions fall under the priority of our unity together in Jesus. We are called to unity. And then finally, the last thing Paul reminds us is that you and I are called to gracious peacemaking. We're called to gracious peacemaking. Look what he says in verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, those aren't just throwaway words for Paul, right? That isn't just like, with love. Paul actually uses grace and peace constantly as the defining reality of what it looks like to be under the lordship of Jesus. For those that have trusted in Jesus, they have experienced God's grace. Grace just means unmerited or undeserved favor. Because they've experienced grace, they now have peace with God. That, that's Paul's understanding. If, if you've put your trust in Jesus, God, in Christ, has died for your sins. Which means you've made choices that put you at odds with God out of your rebellion. And the Bible's clear. The wages of our sin is death. It's eternal separation from God. But in Jesus, God comes to pay for our sins. Jesus dies on the cross in our place to take our death that we deserve. And what God gives us then is his unmerited favor and righteousness over our lives. So to be a Christian is to get something you didn't deserve, which is life. You deserve death. But Jesus took that and he gave you life. And that now marks your reality. And because of that, what Paul reminds you is you have peace. That's rooted in the Hebrew word for shalom, which is the idea of peace and harmony and wholeness. Because of God's grace, you now have experienced a relationship with God that's been returned to harmony and wholeness. And also, you're called to peace with one another, to harmony and wholeness and unity with those around you. So when Paul says grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ— what he's saying to the Corinthians is, these now are the markers of your reality that you're meant to live out. You're meant to recognize that you're a people of grace and peace, that you've received from God what you didn't deserve, and you now live in peace with him, and therefore this should mark the culture of how you live with one another. Think of it like this. Um, a few weeks ago, I got pulled over. It was late at night. I was driving back with a couple of my kids from a friend's house. And all of a sudden, those bright blue and red lights started flashing behind me. And it's always the worst when your kids are with you because you're like, I can't even, like, not tell them. Like, <laughs> this is just about to happen, right? That, like, whole dread in the moment. 
Roll down the window, cop comes over. Long story short, I, uh, my tags on my car had expired, and I didn't realize it. So he comes, and he basically says, like, hey, your tags are expired. I'm like, are you sure? I thought I renewed those. Like, he's like, well, I'll double check. Like, he comes back. He's like, nope, you didn't. Like, dang it. Right? Like, there's the moment. And, and to be perfectly honest, like, I, I have no excuse. Like, I'm guilty. Like, there's no, I didn't do it. The law is, renew your tags. I didn't renew my tags. There's a fine if you don't. I can't really argue with the cop at that point. Like, I just, I'm done for. I'm like, oh, man, this is going to cost me. The cop showed me grace. So he comes back to me, and he says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to issue you a citation, but what I want you to do is I want you to go and have your plates renewed. Once you get your plates renewed, you're going to set a court date in a couple months. You're going to show up at that court date. When you do, I'm going to be there, and I'm going to dismiss all the charges against you. So you will not incur a fine. You'll only have to pay for renewing your plates. I was like, oh, my goodness. Thank you, Lord. And I renewed my plates, and that's what happened. So his grace, though, that he showed me changed my whole reality. I, I didn't drive home that day like dreading, oh, shoot, what am I going to do now? I, I, it didn't cause the sort of anxiety or the, the sort of self-protection. I didn't have to go home and like start to write down like, all right, what's my defense going to be? Well, the system was busted and I, I didn't know about, like, like I had peace because I experienced grace. And that then shaped how I was able to live. What Paul wants to say is, if you're going to be in unity together, you have to recognize that grace has created peace for you, and that's the reality you now live in. That if you're in Jesus, God has come to you in the present, and he has said, hey, here's the deal. I'm going to pay for your sin. And so that day when I return to judge the living and the dead, when I come to eradicate the world from sin and reestablish my kingdom for all time, and I remove those, from my presence who are in sin, guess what? You don't have to worry about that day. I've already taken care of the fine. I've already paid the price. So you now can have peace and you can begin to live in the present to show the world what I'm like by the unity that we have. You see, grace provides peace and that shapes our reality and it allows us to live united in Jesus. And at the end of the day, it brings us back to the place where we can remember, yeah, part of the reason we have unity is because we're called together in Christ. We're set apart people. We're a people who are called to a larger unity in the kingdom of God. And grace and peace should now mark the culture that we're around us. Now the problem is, we've lost that somewhere along the way. We've started to lose it. And it breaks my heart. Man, I've endured through this last season. And I want to say this carefully, but I get passionate a little bit about this because I've seen our unity start to be compromised for way less than the gospel of Jesus. I mean, I've seen people who've broken fellowship and unity in our congregation alone because of what we said about masks. And I've seen people who've broken fellowship in our community because of what we didn't say about masks. I've seen people who leave our church because I made a comment in my sermon. I've had people who have left our church because I didn't make enough comments in my sermon. I have people who have left our church because, man, my life group was really hard. Or that relationship was really tough. And I can't be here anymore. And I'm like, 
isn't, isn't unity there somewhere? Like, isn't grace and peace with one another still supposed to be the culture? And I'm not saying we don't have hard discussions. And I'm not saying there aren't important things for us to talk about and wrestle through. Don't hear me say that. But somewhere along the way, the things that divide us in the world are getting, are usurping the unity that we're called to in Christ. And if we do that, brothers and sisters, we just look like the world. And people will come into a church that says, oh, they're divided over race. Shocker. Oh, they're divided over who has much and who doesn't. They're divided over their political opinions. They're divided. We just look like everything around us. And that doesn't show anything of the world of what Jesus is meant to be like in his kingdom. We fight for unity together. We push and we work through the hard stuff so that we can show the world the unity of our God. And we can show them how good he really is. And over the next few weeks, we're going to keep digging into what it looks like to be a people united. But hear the call at the get-go. You see, at the end of the day, our unity starts with the calling of God. He called you into his family. He called you to be part of this community. And when you recognize what his calling is, it gives us the motivation to be a people who pursue living out that calling in the world. And I pray it would be so. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.